0: Welcome to Stars and Swords, I'm Alistair Stevens. This week, we cross the halfway point of the novel as we discuss chapters 17 to 29 of Terry Miles' Rabbits, in which we meet Sidney Farrow, contemplate a world in which the Before trilogy is only a duology, learn about towers and about radiance, meet a man named Crow and visit with an old friend, get to know Neil. And Neil's mother, discover the Gatewick Institute and the children of the Grey God, follow rockets to the Seattle monorail, and finally get something like an explanation of what is going on. Kind of. Maybe. Before we get to all that, though, I promised last time that I would talk a little about Kay's role in this story as a protagonist, as a narrator, and as a mediator of the reader experience. And this is particularly important because, in a powerful sense, This voice, this perspective, this is what distinguishes Terry Miles as a writer. And I guess I'm using distinguish there in both senses of the word, right? It it is what sets him apart and what makes his work impressive. The Public Radio Alliance podcasts, including Rabbits, are all written as pastiches of NPR-style, serial-style investigative journalism. Serial, which really brought podcasts to a huge new audience, was launched in 2014, The Black Tapes, the first PRA podcast, began in 2015, and from the beginning, there was a specificity about the reference that made The Black Tapes stand out. It wasn't just a good story, it was a good pastiche. In that series, radio producer and investigative journalist Alex Regan explores the world of paranormal phenomena. During her investigations, she develops a working relationship with Dr. Richard Strand, who is... A little older a little more worldly extremely confident and intelligent and dangles knowledge about this mysterious world in front of our protagonist six months after the launch of the black tapes pra launches tanis a series in which nick silver alex's producer on the black tapes launches his own investigation into ancient conspiracies and mysteries surrounding this place which may or may not exist called tanis In his investigations, he's assisted by Mir Catnip, a near-omnipotent hacker with a mastery of the dark web and an excellent line in snark. Rabbits launches then in 2017. In the first season, investigative journalist Carly Parker looks into the disappearance of her friend and the mysterious game that she was playing. During her investigations, she develops a working relationship with a man named Jones, who is a little older and extremely confident and intelligent, and dangles knowledge about this mysterious world in front of our protagonist, and I think that you can see where I am going here. The following year, The Last Movie follows Nick and Meerkatnip in a different, parallel investigation to Tanis. this time looking into an underground movie surrounded by bloodshed and secrecy. All these series take place in the same fictional world. Alex and Nick, in particular, cross over and appear in each other's shows. They all share a similar producing style too, which is to say that they sound exactly like *Serial*, with that distinctive mix of authored editorial and spontaneous conversation, ambient music and incredibly tight, crafted, edited rhythms, cliffhangers, rising and falling tension, and of course, ad breaks. They maintain the illusion of the fictional world so completely that no one is publicly credited for voice acting these characters. Even Nick Silver, who was performed by Terry Miles himself, is referred to as Miles's cousin. So, two things. First, Terry Miles and the fictional folks at PRA are not the only people to pastiche serial in the years since that explosive first season, which looked into the case of Adnan Syed and the murder of Heyman Lee. The PRA podcasts, however, are probably the best, are at least among the best, and certainly are among the most successful. This is due to Miles' unarguable skill, both in giving his protagonists compelling voices and in sketching tantalizing mysteries. As I mentioned before, I would recommend all of the podcasts that I just referenced, and probably I would recommend the podcast Fairy as well, although I haven't yet listened to that one. But you probably noticed something about those shows. They all share a similar tone, and honestly, they are all kind of a similar story. Alex Regan from The Black Tapes is a lot like Carly Parker from Rabbits, and like Kay from the novel. Dr. Richard Strand and the mysterious Copernicus Jones both come from the same mold, and it is a mold that they share to a greater or lesser extent with the novel versions of Alan Scarpio and then Crow. Characterization in general is perhaps a little thin. Nick and Katnip have the same kinds of somewhat formulaic rhythmic exchanges again and again in the course of their series. All the shows are set in seattle and range across the pacific northwest they all share a common cultural reference library of 1980s and 1990s tv movies and video games a large percentage of the characters across all the podcasts and across the novel speak with very similar voices some of this is the product of modest budgets and what i take to be an extremely resourceful but ultimately fairly constrained production process And, you know, writing something like 150 episodes of podcast content in the same shared fictional universe is going to reveal any writer's habits and tendencies. What's more challenging, as a fan of these shows, is that they are mystery box shows. They raise fascinating mysteries with the same kind of conspiratorial, horror-inflected, behind-the-masquerade-of-everyday-life-there-are-wonders kind of tone, and they build those mysteries out episode-by-episode. Ancient secret society, check. Connections with magical rituals and high technology, check. Powerful antagonists who move in the shadows, check. What they don't do, and this is the bulk of public criticism leveled against the PRA podcasts online, what they don't do is end. They don't tie off mysteries, they don't offer answers. The Black Tapes tries some interesting narrative gambits, but both Rabbits and Tannis, when they reach the point where we need resolution, where it becomes narratively unsustainable to continue to not answer a question, pivot away into a different kind of mystery, a different branch of the same investigation. So while the moment-to-moment storytelling, I think, is consistently excellent if you have patience with that serial pastiche style and the same recurring ticks and rhythms in dialogue and characterization, but there's ultimately the sense that these stories are not built to end. They are built to expand ever outward, to continue season after season as long as people are listening. And I'm sympathetic to that because endings are always difficult, and endings in horror fiction, in mystery fiction, are the most difficult of all so much of the magic of these types of stories happens not on the page but in the mind of the reader in the possibility space that is created by the imagination of the audience this takes us back to our roots back to our classics back to our aristotle in the poetics when aristotle writes that the best endings ought to be both surprising but inevitable and in mystery fiction where part of the game is inviting the reader to try to solve the mystery alongside the protagonist and in speculative fiction, including horror, where part of the game is encouraging the reader to expand their boundaries of what is possible, in those two spaces specifically, surprising but inevitable, is extremely difficult to achieve. A side note here, an excellent future season of this podcast, I think, would be to look at the most successful pieces of mystery fiction and study how they handle the reveal. In the meantime, if you've never read your Conan Doyle, particularly The Adventures of Sherlock Holmes, which is the bound volume containing the first stories published in the Strand from A Scandal in Bohemia to The Adventure of the Copper Beaches, then you ought to. And if you have favorite mystery stories with satisfying endings, head over to the Discord and recommend them. All of which brings us back to Kay. And Kay is a challenge, because unlike the protagonists of the podcasts, Kay is not a journalist. More importantly, more specifically, Kay is not preparing this narrative for us in the way that a journalist would, or even in the way that a novelist would. There is no sense in which Rabbits is a diegetic text. This book does not exist in any form within the fictional frame. That is, we aren't reading Kay's diary. We aren't reading transcripts of a podcast or reading a book which Kay sat down to write after the fact. This is a much more traditional kind of first-person internal monologue kind of story which gives us as we've previously discussed when we talked about games and interactivity a great sense of immediacy we are in the moment with k we feel what k feels we remember what k remembers in all the anarchic unformed contradictory clash and clamor of experience and memory and it works broadly As I discussed in last week's show, situating the reader in Kay's experience of the connections and the patterns which constitute rabbits is the book's greatest narrative move. But the problem with this approach is this. Not only is Kay not preparing a considered comprehensive text for the reader, Kay seems to be just as mired in the stream of their own consciousness as we are. There's very little reflection that isn't immediately motivated. That is to say, K doesn't think about things that aren't immediately present or directly connected to something that's immediately present, including their own motivations. There is no narrative framing. There is no explanation of K's intent beyond the superficial. Let's take a specific example here. K lies all the time, particularly to Chloe, and particularly in this week's reading. Chloe knows it and calls it out, But we get no reflection on why k lies why these choices are made we are left to infer that perhaps k is secretive perhaps k feels discomfort and shame and a sense of danger about their mental health perhaps k lies as a means of pushing off the truth to give themselves time to strengthen their defenses against this onrush of impossibility but because we get no self-reflexivity from k because K is not challenged in this behavior, we get neither psychological insight nor an emotional arc. And this is important because in a story like this, so dependent on plot and on the elements of mystery, the narrator isn't just a lens through which we can experience the world. The narrator ought to, arguably must, mediate that experience for the reader, make that experience easier to parse, to understand, to connect with intellectually and emotionally. John Watson is present in his narrative account of the workings of Sherlock Holmes, and we occasionally do get some emotionally charged language when it serves the scene. But Watson's primary aim, textually and extratextually, is to tell us about his associate's amazing deductive prowess. K explains the personal emotional connections, usually, <laughs> but doesn't try to frame what is happening for our benefit. And K not only doesn't mediate the plot for us, but actively impedes our understanding of it, leaving us to piece together the timeline, as we did last week, and to draw connections between K's encounters with the more impossible elements of their experience, which we'll talk about in just a little while. This is the Mystery novel alternate reality game ergodic element of the text itself. It is supposed to be non trivial to read. We are presented with the rush of experience and memory and immediacy, but trying to parse that into a credible synopsis of what has really happened requires effort. The other side of this, of course, is that because Kay isn't framing the movement of the plot for the benefit of the reader, There's no easy means of offering exposition, and this is where we challenge our own sense of craft. Because this is where we end up in long conversations where character A will say proper noun, and character B will say proper noun, question mark, clarifying adjective, question mark, and character A will say yes, and character B will say slightly snarky follow-up, question mark, and so on, for pages at a time. And all of this is particularly challenging because when we start parsing the plot movement, and and God knows, for a book in which the characters love to sit around and talk to each other, we rarely clarify what Kay thinks is happening. We very rarely clarify what is actually happening. And I don't normally do this, but we are going to jump the timeline and get our feet under us a little bit because here's the situation as we understand it at the end of this week's reading. No spoilers for next week, but at the end of this week's reading, here is what we understand. K has been slipping between dimensions, which accounts for the contradictions between memory and history. The first and most significant slip which occurs in the novel is in chapter 10, when K loses time after leaving the magician's arcade and ends up almost stepping off the curb into the path of a speeding Volvo. This is when we're introduced to the Kingfisher Cafe A, real cafe in Seattle, by the way, which really did close in 2015. Returning home, K doesn't remember asking Chloe to look into the connections between Chronicler Enterprises and War Games which means that a version of K was present in this universe during K's lost time. We'll talk more about what that might mean later in this episode. So now K is in a new universe, which is mostly the same, except that the Kingfisher Cafe didn't close, and Richard Linklater didn't make a third film with Ethan Hawke and Julie Delpy. And by implication, a huge number of other tiny details are also different. This is followed immediately by Kay's account of the building with the missing floor. That is, in retrospect, a clear example of another dimensional slip between a world in which the building has four stories and a world in which the building has five. Though, interestingly here, Kay is able to see from one world into the other, noting the erroneous reflection in the windows of the building across the street. The gray fuzzy darkness is present in the arcade before Kay's lost time. It is present both on the street and in the therapist's office as Kay sees the reflection of the wrong building. And that incident, too, features some missing time, because we're told that Kay wakes up in hospital with two sprained wrists, bruised ribs, and no memory of anything after seeing the reflection. It's also present in the account Kay gave us at the very end of last week's reading, in which we're told that shortly after the ninth iteration of Rabbits ended, Kay was walking at night, thinking about connections, and felt as though something was following them. This is from the end of chapter 16, quote, I tried to run, but my feet were stuck. As I stood there, a wet cold entered my body from somewhere deep beneath the ground and moved slowly up my legs, eventually clouding its way into my head. I tried to call out for help, but my mouth was suddenly filled with coarse black hair that tasted like the sour musk of an oily animal from the sea. I tried everything to shake it off and get away, but I couldn't move. I was frozen in place as the darkness rose up into the night sky and poured forward to devour me completely. Then I woke up. I was incredibly hungover, with no memory of how I'd made it back to the hotel so again we have the fuzziness the shadows the feeling of being watched and chased the lost time so we have to ask now now that we are equipped with these concepts did case switch universes that night and if so why and if so where to so let's maybe make a list that we can keep in mind going forward right these are the events that we know to be true The chess game in the park as a child, which was after 1996, the release date of Peter Jackson's The Frighteners, but before 1999, and probably much closer to the former than the latter, given Kay's age. The night station drive with Annie and Emily Connors, which was 1999. The Harvard Exit Theatre incident between Kay's sophomore and junior years, probably 2005. The therapist's office with the disappearing floor, which we're told was 2016, just as the ninth iteration was beginning the Nightwalk episode just as the ninth iteration was ending, which we learn in chapter 20 was in 2017, and the Kingfisher Cafe episode in 2021. So six times prior to this week's reading that Kay has almost definitely experienced the same thing, has experienced the fuzziness, the gray shadows, the sense of fear and of being watched, and then of lost time. These things which we now associate with the transit from one dimension to another. We don't know where Kay has started. We don't know whether these dimensional slips have been bouncing back and forth between two different worlds, or whether each dimensional slip takes Kay somewhere entirely new. But you know, we'll get to talk about that a little at the end of the reading. First, well, we've got lots to do. Let's get into it. We begin this week's reading with chapter 17 and the abrupt introduction into the narrative of Sidney Farrow, who we mentioned last week, but who now shows up at the arcade to meet with Kay and Chloe. The chain of connections back to Baron Corduroy is perhaps somewhat slight, but I do find Sydney to be immediately effective on the page, which is probably no coincidence given that Kay introduces her as, quote, not only the greatest architect of game engine dynamics to ever work in the industry, but also an extremely creative builder of characters and story, end quote. It's interesting that this book at this point is introducing a character who is a master of both the ludological and narratological forms, isn't it? The real purpose of this sequence, though, is to introduce the Tower, a new building at the WarGames campus in Seattle, and an important location as well as an important symbol for the rest of the story. We also note that testers on the video game that Sidney Harrow was working on have been getting sick and dying in mysterious circumstances, connected to strange videos just like the one that Baron Corduroy was watching. We also introduce here the Byzantine Game Engine, a framework that can be used to build and publish video games. Byzantine here has two obvious meanings. The first and root meaning is the adjectival form of Byzantium, the Greek settlement on the European bank of the Bosphorus in modern-day Turkey. It was founded in the 7th century BCE and is of little historical note for about a thousand years until 330 CE, when Constantine the Great, who had been raised in Diocletian's court in Nicomedia, also in modern-day Turkey and the then capital of the Eastern Roman Empire, He dedicates the former Greek city of Byzantium, which had been extensively rebuilt and re-engineered by Roman architects over the better part of a decade, as the new seat of power in the East, Constantinople. So the use of Byzantine in the name of the game engine is interesting in that sense because it is perhaps what goes before. It is the foundation. It is the precursor to what is great, which actually is a pretty good name for a game engine that is going to be used to build the actual products that people will be interacting with and playing. But the modern sense of Byzantine, and and by modern here, I really mean it because the word only has this meaning in English for about 90 years since Arthur Koestler's usage in 1937. The modern sense of the word Byzantine means complex and devious and treacherous and inscrutable, duplicitous and dangerous qualities associated with the imperial court of Constantine the Great in the popular imagination of the 20th century. So the Byzantine game engine, therefore, might be read as something which can be put to great use, but which is itself dangerously, treacherously complex. This might be related to its apparent purpose, producing virtual reality environments that are indistinguishable from real life, except, as Sidney notes, for the absence of smell, the explanations that she offers may be a little arcane if you're not already plugged into video game culture and digital spaces, but she's talking about a system that can create completely immersive virtual worlds, worlds which feel real. The connection here between quantum field theory and the Bader-Meinhoff phenomenon, as has better known as confirmation bias, or the frequency illusion, this idea that as soon as you buy a model of a particular car, you start seeing that model of particular car everywhere that you go, right? This is confirmation bias. This connection between QFT and Bader meinhof is really interesting, partly because it begins to offer a means of understanding rabbits, a speculative means of understanding rabbits. And I'm going to have to give an incredibly brief and superficial account here, so stay with me. Quantum field theory, QFT, is the conceptual framework for our current understanding of particle physics, that is, how particles act and interact in the real world. QFT tells us, most simply, that what we traditionally thought of as particles are actually the measurable results of vibrations in quantum fields, which means that, on a very superficial level, that they are expressions of probability, not certainty. Probability, not certainty, is the means by which we must understand the subatomic world. We cannot say where an electron is. We can only say with clear probabilities where it could be. The implication is that when we're following a pattern in the game, when we're looking for a connection in Rabbit's terminology, that we are, thanks to the bader meinhoff phenomenon, thanks to this confirmation bias, we are more likely to see one if we are looking for one. And the book seems to be suggesting that this likelihood, this increase in local probability might actually skew the probability of a particular formulation in the quantum fields, making the thing more likely. And this is fascinating, because, well, I mean, in part, just because it's an intoxicating science fiction idea right there, but also because it explains the secrecy around rabbits. If the players are, in some sense, manifesting the connections as they move through the world, if they are creating the game as they play it, then if everyone knew about rabbits and everyone was playing the world would be chaos. All of this is speculation, and we're running up hard against my renaissance man, which I basically mean renaissance era understanding of particle physics. But to circle back to the beginning of this episode, this is a perfect example of rabbits offering a really interesting idea to the reader, but the substance of that idea remaining largely opaque because K isn't fulfilling the narrative function and clarifying it. I got excited about this idea the first time I read the book because... Well, because I am a crazy nerd, and I was already interested in the history of the Eastern Roman Empire, the way that the English language plunders the classical world for idiomatic usages related to our superficial, often fictional, often racist conceptions of ancient cultures. Because I'm also interested in QFT and in confirmation bias, and because I'm also interested in video games and virtual worlds, and that's a pretty narrow slice of the Venn diagram right there. And I want to be clear here, too, that Kay's passive refusal to explain more of what is happening for the benefit of the reader isn't, with all quantum probability, a mistake by the author. This is not Terry Miles missing an opportunity. Rather, it's an invitation to the reader who cares, who wants to delve more deeply and to find the clues, to solve the mystery and do the legwork. It is a feature, not a bug, of a text that wants to be enigmatic and wants to, to some extent, to behave like a game. This is also the point in the story where savvy and experienced science fiction readers, oh, I should note, including Eric over on the Next World Discord, who anticipated this move after last week's reading, which is impressive, might start thinking about simulation theory. And I have to say, if I was preparing this podcast in 1998, this would be a much more difficult idea to communicate. I mean, not least of all because I would have to start by inventing podcasting. But thanks to the Wachowski siblings, I can encapsulate most of the foundations of simulation theory by simply asking, what if The Matrix... Because at its simplest level, simulation theory posits that what we experience, the world around us, the universe beyond, is just not real, but rather a fake of some kind which we are apprehending as real. The wall of Plato's cave, for example, in which all we see are the shadows cast by the firelight. The current idea, the most fashionable idea, credited to philosopher Nick Bostrom, goes like this. It seems obvious that computing power is going to continue to increase and increase and increase and will sooner or later become effectively infinite. The kind of computing power you might find in a high-tech tower in Seattle, for example. At that point, scholars and academics and historians will presumably use that amazing computer power to create virtual worlds of the past, simulations of the past, to better understand their origins. They could mathematically recreate perfect copies of their historical world, every river, every forest, every city, every person, every fruit fly. And if they can someday do it, and if it is by that time basically free and basically trivial, then wouldn't we expect them to do it a lot? To make lots of virtual terraria containing simulations of their own past universe? If they are sufficiently sophisticated, could they not create a terrarium within which scientists create a secondary terrarium? the snow globe within the snow globe, and an effectively infinite number of those? And if so, isn't it mathematically much, much more likely that we are not living in the single, solitary, real world, but rather in one of the thousands or millions or billions of functionally identical simulated worlds? And there are, of course, innumerable expansions of this argument and counter-arguments and counter-arguments to the counter-arguments and so on and so forth. And those would be better suited to my increasingly inevitable amateur philosophy podcast, I guess. But what matters most in rabbits is that simulation theory also offers an explanation of what is happening to K, a different explanation from our dimension slip hypothesis that I mentioned earlier. If we are living inside of a simulation, Are the rabbit's connections just glitches in the matrix? Or perhaps some subtle means of drawing our focus and attention, not random, but rather architected by some unknown mind outside of the simulation? It's an interesting thought. And with that, we're seven pages into today's 150-page reading, so I had better get moving. There is not a lot to say about Kay's memory of a third Richard Linklater before movie here, particularly because I've already alluded to it in last week's reading, except to say that those films are among my very favorites, and if you've never seen them, you absolutely should. It seems unlikely now that we are going to get a fourth entry, An increasingly forthright Julie Delpy sank the idea in 2021 after Linklater apparently brought her a pitch, but who knows, things change all the time. From here, we transition into a very different kind of science fiction adventure, although now that I think about it, and as Kay is about to call out at the beginning of the next chapter, the identical twins are also very Matrix. This is the return to the narrative of the character now identified as Swan, the woman who met with Kay in the diner after Scarpio disappeared what feels like a lifetime ago. They take Scarpio's phone, which Chloe has bugged, and our heroes set off in hot pursuit. From there, we move through the visit to the museum and the connections with Dante, as well as the discovery of the QR code in the art of Gustave Dore, which I must admit, I really love as an ancient conspiracy Da Vinci code kind of twist. It's at the beginning of chapter 19, however, that we get our next turn in the plot. Kay's dream sequence, beginning with gravity going away and a sudden ascent into space of everything that is not tied down. K, in a stream-of-consciousness moment, references Babel, Babylon Ziggurat. That is, the biblical Tower of Babel, which is the name in Hebrew for the real-world Mesopotamian city of Babylon, and Ziggurat, of course, which is the word for a stepped pyramid, such as the Etemenanki, an impressive Ziggurat in Babylon, which was ultimately destroyed by Alexander the Great and is often thought to be the root of the biblical story of the Tower of Babel. And we might be able to make something of the biblical story of that tower, of course, and God's decision to sow confusion and discord among the peoples of the earth by separating their languages and ensuring that they could not communicate effectively enough to build the tower and, per the story, to name themselves. More on that, perhaps, later. But really, we've now transitioned into the second part of the novel, and what we are really doing here is Laying the track for the plot to come. That is, we are talking about this tower and exploring Kay's dream of the tower to set the stage for the capital T tower that we'll get to in short order, as well as seeding a little bit of potent symbolism later. We'll fast forward through Kay's breakfast date with Chloe, pausing only, I guess, to note the reference to Gravity's Rainbow and Chloe's line, quote, like the novel Gravity's Rainbow teaches you how to read it as you're reading. And it's nice to get the confirmation that the author is thinking in exactly these terms. It certainly accounts, if we're willing to be biographical for a moment, for the deliberate structure of the first three chapters, the way the book onboards the new reader. I myself, I must confess, have bumped off of Gravity's Rainbow more than once, but if you love the kaleidoscopic conspiratorial elements of rabbits, I highly recommend Thomas Pynchon's The Crying of Lot 49, or I guess you could just wait until we inevitably cover that book right here on this podcast. At the end of this chapter, we are told that Kay doesn't recognize the green glass tower at the head of the WarGames campus, which we'll circle back to after we revisit the arcade and another of Kay's briefings on Rabbits. And again, here we get an example of the book being very self aware about its own procession through the plot, about its recapitulation of earlier scenes, and about the stress and the tension that exists between the narrative space and the game space. Because Kay's open question about the difference between Space Ace and Donkey Kong Jr. is another opportunity for the novel to meditate on exactly that difference, on the difference between the ludological and the narratological. And this time to present an interesting and somewhat counterintuitive counterpoint. Of the two games, Space Ace is obviously more narratological, since its ludic elements are are relatively limited. You get to make very few choices in Space Ace, and progression of the game is the progression of the story. It is more clearly a story than Donkey Kong Jr., but Kay argues Donkey Kong Jr. actually offers greater narrative potential than Space Ace, because there are simply more things to do. That is, the player makes more choices, and the interaction of those choices and the game systems create a different kind of story. This is what we now think of as emergent narrative, as opposed to Space Ace's authored narrative. Space Ace has a story to tell, and you win, that is, you get to read the story, or you lose. Donkey Kong Jr. doesn't have much of a story to tell. It's a simple game where you play Donkey Kong's son trying to rescue his imprisoned father from the nefarious Mario. But your specific movements as you jump, climb, collect fruit, dodge enemies, these tight escapes and well-timed jumps, last-minute victories and agonizing failures, these gameplay elements create a different, much more nuanced and personal kind of story, a story that was not authored by anyone but emerges from the interaction between player and game. We get another journey into art history, this time with Christina's World by Andrew Wyeth, which, much like the museum, really works for me. Chloe warns Kay off from playing the game, and Kay just blanks her, without any extra information to the reader on why Kay is being so secretive. In chapter 21, we begin with the discovery of a photograph of the tall blonde woman from the Jeff Goldblum video, this time with the scar, it's another effective bit of detective work, but the real intent of the scene is to give Kay the information that the magician, who never plays the game, is now playing the game. Chloe and Kay kiss, and the next morning, Sydney Farrow shows up to take them to the tower. Oh, I would be remiss if I didn't note one of the most human and genuine moments that we get from Chloe, one of the moments in which she is least like a manic pixie dream girl, to my mind, when she is just not orbiting Kay but is rather behaving like a person. Quote, I hung up the phone and rolled over to find Chloe staring at me with a concerned look on her face. What happened last night can never happen again, she said. Deadly serious. I opened my mouth to speak when she burst into laughter. Oh my god, she said, your face! End quote. It's good stuff. It's cute. From there, we get to see how advanced the Byzantine game engine really is, and find the footage of Alan Scarpio at the tower on the night that he met Kay, and then subsequently disappeared. This takes us to the first of two really big scenes that we get in this week's reading, the most important scenes in this week's reading, and perhaps fundamental to the structure of the novel as a whole. Waiting for a security clearance at the tower, Kay begins to feel the fuzzy gray feeling and steps into the elevator alone. She emerges into the penthouse space with its lavish descriptions of high-tech meets retro opulence, and then, of course, we're introduced to the mysterious Crow, and to Crow's global monitoring and information system, apparently running off the giant server farm that fills the tower. This, thematically, of course, ties us back to quantum field theory and the idea that probability is only a product of incomplete data that if we knew enough, we could conquer what Dr. Ian Malcolm sitting in the back of a jeep on a subtropical island dropping water on Laura Dern's hand might call chaos theory, the intersection of complex systems which yield massively unpredictable results. But with enough information, perhaps, we could distill out the absolute truth, and with enough information, perhaps, we could apply specific leverage to force the system into a new stable pattern. This belief that chaos is only the product of an incomplete understanding, is one of the big philosophical breaking points in the mathematical and pseudo-mathematical philosophical communities. We also introduce here the critical idea that there are in fact lines of force and energy in the world called Meacham radiance, kind of like ley lines. And for all that Crow likes to talk, we don't get here a lot of concrete information, though we are introduced to the idea that navigating or manipulating the radiance, which are naturally occurring, could result in an individual slipping between dimensions. This is presented with the kind of emphasis that suggests it's supposed to be taken as a possible alternative to the simulation theory, virtual world explanation that we might have been otherwise inclined toward earlier in this reading. This, we are told, is the work that brought Kay's parents to Washington in the first place. At this point, we get a momentary reintroduction to Emily Connors, who is visibly angry with Crow, and we'll circle back around to that in a little while. In the meantime, we get an abrupt goodbye from Crow, and when Kay returns to the ground floor in the elevator, she finds that no time has passed for Chloe and Sydney. They get back in the elevator, return to the top floor, only for Kay to learn that it is different now, that Crow's luxurious workspace is nowhere to be seen, and so Kay, of course, faints. Again, lost time. Kay returns home with Chloe and enumerates the many questions left over after the meeting with Crow. Then in chapter 25, Kay goes to war games to meet with Sidney Farrow, but after an unlikely meeting with a surprising number of Dalmatians at an intersection, Sidney Farrow no longer recognizes Kay. It is unclear where or when this change occurred, but Kay also realizes here that they have lost an entire day, that it is now Monday. In another enigmatic meeting, Crow warns Kay to stop playing rabbits or the world will change and everyone Kay knows, including Chloe, will forget her. The shift here, the move from investigation to paranoid conspiracy thriller, is an effective one and it's a slow burn too because ever since Kay first went to the tower, we have been seeding the idea that these implausible coincidences are happening to Kay rather than being found themselves. And there's an interesting narrative tension at the heart of that misunderstanding, that misapprehension on Kay's part. Kay seems to believe that Crow somehow took them to the penthouse suite in the tower, though we, the readers, more considered, more detached, more discriminating perhaps, note that Crow is surprised by Kay's presence. But the Dalmatians at the intersection, the yellow Prius, the people on the bus, even, we might speculate, the buzz on Kay's doorbell which begins the chapter, Kay is, to some extent, reactive now. And that sense of being manipulated is both impressively claustrophobic in the prose, but also a strong thematic inversion, taking our active protagonist and forcing them to be reactive. The other interesting thing that happens here in the midst of everything is that a layer of the subtext is momentarily, and I think very purposefully, pulled away. After Kay crosses the street and ducks down an alley to avoid the Prius, only to find that the Prius is following them again, we get this. Quote, That's when the floodgates finally opened and the familiar wave of anxiety poured into my mind and body. Suddenly, I had the feeling I was walking alongside myself, my body completely untethered from my mind. In that moment, I had one thought. If I could just lose that yellow car, everything would return to normal. The literalization of the fuzzy gray rabbit's feeling into anxiety is an interesting move. Several of you, including Elizabeth over on the Discord, have said that Rabbits, the book, but more so the game, I guess, makes you feel anxious. And here we have Kay drawing exactly the same comparison. The removal of the subtext here is important, I think, in two ways. And they kind of work simultaneously. They kind of work in tandem with one another. In the moment, superficially, the careful reader might wonder if Kay is really suffering from some kind of anxiety disorder, if all of this stuff is really happening, if lost time and trans-dimensional travel and conversations with mysterious James Bond supervillains and megalithic towers are actually real. And that, obviously, would be a pretty hack strategy, a tired narrative turn that is as dismissive of real-world mental health concerns as it is narratively clichéd. But at the same time, and I think this is crucial... That interpretation is challenged, I think effectively prevented, by the story itself. Because we're getting this unfolding detail. K feels like they're being chased. Oh, hey, it's a yellow Prius, a distinctive car, with a distinctive and somewhat prosaic magnetic decal on the door. Oh, hey, this car has followed K impossibly through the streets, and it's definitely the same specific car. So this is really happening. This is not a product of anxiety. This car all but herds Kay onto the downtown bus, and lo and behold, there's Crow, master manipulator. The book itself gives us no reason to doubt the veracity of Kay's account. So the anticipated narrative move of eroding Kay's certainty and casting the shadow of mental illness is invoked, but then soundly rejected by the text itself. What is happening is happening. Even the meeting with Crow is ultimately confirmation of Kay's experience, because Crow confirms Sidney Farrow and Chloe and Kay's parents. So while the meeting with Crow might feel on the one hand somewhat repetitive of the meeting that we just had in the tower, bringing Crow down from the tower into the real world, challenging Kay's perception of events, twisting the lines of probability in a way that is likely to make Kay feel as though this isn't real, and Credit, too, to Miles for not using cheap and loaded ableist words to describe how Kay could be feeling in this moment. Then absolutely confirming that, to whatever extent is important, this is absolutely real? Well, I admit, I always enjoyed the tense, impossible pursuit across the city, but realizing the narrative strategy here, the implicit rejection of any idea that this could be happening in Kay's head, while preserving Kay's sense that this could be happening in Kay's head... I think it's it's a masterful stroke, and I think it made me appreciate it even more. We're suddenly moving fairly quickly through the events of these chapters, and that's because the book really takes a hard turn toward plot here, though it is a disjointed, erratic, lurching kind of plot progression, marked by uncertainty on the part of Kay and this recurring, looping kind of repetition. Because we introduce Sidney Farrow, who is not dissimilar from Baron Corduroy, and we loop back again to the briefing at the arcade, and we loop back again to the introduction of Crow, who is not dissimilar to Alan Scarpio. It feels as though parts of the second act of this book are clarified, distilled recapitulations of parts of the first act. And I don't know how intentional that is. In the chapter break between chapters 25 and 26, Kay apparently loses more time, perhaps implying something about what Crow did on the bus or is doing in aggregate. The novel is giving us a vocabulary now for understanding what is happening, though it is incomplete. There's a grammar and a syntax that we have yet to grasp, but we do have at least some sense of what is possible. Kay comes clean with Chloe, who is skeptical, until it turns out that Kay accidentally recorded the whole conversation with Crow, conveniently. And from there, we track down Neil, the so-called fat man, the story that he tells them about John Lennon starring in the movie War Games, by the way, is a slightly dramatized version of the truth. Uh, Lasker and Parks, who began developing the film under the name The Genius in 1979, wanted at first for the protagonist's mentor figure, Professor Stephen Falcon, to be played by real-life genius Professor Stephen Hawking, thus the similarities in name, but they then felt that unflattering comparisons might be drawn between their film and Stanley Kubrick's Doctor Strangelove. The second choice after Hawking was Lennon, who they felt embodied the film's humanist, pacifist spirit. This was, though, a very early part of the process, and before the script had turned into the story about interconnected computers, the early days of the internet, and the power of the hacker. Lennon dies in December of 1980. The film ultimately shoots between August and November of 82, with esteemed character actor John Wood playing the role of Falcon I love War Games and strongly recommend it, and would say furthermore that if you want to create within yourself some of this appreciation for 1980s and 1990s era technology, if you want to incept yourself into loving this aspect of Rabbits too, go and watch War Games from 1983, go and watch The Last Starfighter from 1994, and definitely go and watch Sneakers from 1992, which is a very direct precursor to Rabbits. The narrative strategy here with the introduction of Neil and the return to some of the mysteries from very early in the book is pretty transparent, I think. We have spent a long time away from the mystery of Alan Scarpio and his hope that Kay could help fix the broken game. And the narrative has carried the magician away from us now too. So in the same way as we introduced new Baron Corduroy in the form of Sidney Farrow and in the way that we returned to the briefing scene at the arcade and in the way that Crow is not unlike Alan Scarpio, now we have someone who is not unlike the magician. We've circled back to some of these foundational questions, informed to an extent by our new understanding of what the game is, and of course, by the looming presence of Crow. What is Rabbits? How is it broken? Where is Scarpio? We've come back to our first principles. But we also want to connect Neil to the current state of the plot, So he unveils Mother, his low-tech, low-budget alternative to Crow's high-tech monitoring system. By implication, he acknowledges Crow's superiority when he says that whoever has the first quantum computer becomes a de facto superpower in their own right. Quantum computers, by the way, which use a probability wave to determine the charge on a particle rather than a classical zero or one, uh, an on or off used in classical computing. They already exist, by the way. IBM currently has a 127 qubit Eagle computer and all the other tech giants have their own variations. The technology is real. The problem is it is really unreliable right now with the quantum computers, the best quantum computers averaging one mistake every thousand calculations or so, which makes them useless. But we'll get there. And when we do, we will be forced through an ungainly transition away from classical computing. Though, unlike Neil, I am a little more sanguine that the international scientific and engineering communities will keep the creator of the first stable quantum computer honest. It's a little oblique here, perhaps, because of that looping, repetitious style of conversation that we've noted before, but it seems as though Neil lays out fairly effectively the plot of the book, as we now understand it. Kay mentions the Moriarty factor, the idea that rabbits is run by an individual with the time and the money to make all these weird things happen, and Neil generalizes, quote, somebody behind the game spending a whole bunch of money to make things happen. Which seems to be, of course, exactly what Crow is doing, not literally, but through an abstracted mechanism that we don't fully yet understand. We get the mention of the Children of the Grey God cult, and then we get a primer on the Mandela effect, and then get a couple of interesting scenes, which I really struggle to read clearly. The first is Kay's reflection on Chloe being stranded on the northern anchor of the Aurora Bridge and the justification that Kay offers for the game. Quote, we each had our reasons for wanting the fantastical world promised by rabbits to replace the flawed emotional narrative of our real lives. For Chloe, escaping into a mysterious world meant that she was able to forget her family for a while and focus on something exciting that she was really good at. For me, Rabbits was a way to try and hang on to the sense of mystery and wonder I'd been obsessed with as a kid. But it was more than that. I'd always imagined my obsession with the game was somehow helping me get over the loss of my parents. This is Followed by Kay giving Chloe exactly the kind of instructions that Chloe had previously given Kay. Don't play the game. It's too dangerous. We need to take care of you. You shouldn't be doing this. We even flag this with Chloe snapping at Kay about being the voice of reason and Kay replying, hey, we voice of reason each other. It's what we do. Citation needed. And this exchange ends, of course, with Kay wondering if they are on the brink of a mental or emotional breakdown. And I just don't know what to do with all of this. It seems to be. It seems as though the intent is to reframe, to adjust the emotional stakes of the story. There's been no suggestion up to this point that Kay is navigating the death of their parents through this game. The language we have used has been about compulsion. It has been about obsession. It has been about addiction, which doesn't mean that it isn't a consequence of their parents' death, but it does mean that this has not been a conscious healing process. So here's the question. Is this part of the book a poorly judged narrative strategy, a a desire to reframe the emotional stakes and the emotional dynamic between Kay and Chloe, or is it an indication that something has been changed, that we are supposed to understand that this is a new state of affairs? The latter is seductive, but unfortunately, I'm inclined to view it as the former, partly because of where we go next, but partly because this is the rhythm of the book explore an avenue, make incremental process in our understanding, go back to Kay's apartment, doubt our purpose, make or extract a promise that we're going to leave rabbits alone, have some dream or some kind of vision overnight, wake with a start, and then get immediately back to it like the conversation from the previous night hadn't happened at all. This is the structural reflection of the looping dialogue, the repetitious dialogue that we've observed before. And this may be a higher level commentary about what it feels like to be addicted or to be in a pattern of self-destructive behavior, but my suspicion is that this is an internalized rhythm that comes from writing something like 150 episodes of a narrative podcast. You could take half of this book and cut it into episodic pieces without any trouble whatsoever, which isn't even exactly a condemnation, right? I love serial fiction, but you have to be careful not to use the structures of the serial form. You have to be careful not to use the structures of any form as narrative resets. The shape of the story cannot be used to apply narrative leverage. Kay shouldn't get to wake fresh at the start of every episode with no sense of immediate continuity. The cast of your favorite TV drama, shouldn't be refreshed after a commercial break because they got to get up and stretch their legs and grab a cup of coffee while you were watching ads. To engage in that kind of inconsistency challenges our understanding of the diegesis. It challenges our understanding of the fictional world as a real place with real continuity and consequence. In any case, we'll have the opportunity to talk about the overall structure of this book when we reach the end and possibly come back to reconsider these sequences. Okay, time for more sleuthing and more exposition. Chasing Chronicler Enterprises leads Kay and Chloe to a URL for the Gatewick Institute, purveyors of fine medical experiments in the 1970s and 80s. Kay fetches the box of relics, proving that her parents, as well as Annie and Emily Connor's parents, were at Gatewick, which is symbolized by the circle and triangle image we saw in Kay's elevator dream. I'm going to break my own rules here just a little bit. So very minor spoilers for the Rabbits podcast. Skip ahead about 30 seconds if you don't want to hear them. Ready? Here we go. The Gatewick Institute is part of the Rabbits mythology from the fourth episode of the podcast, which was first released in April of 2017, less than a year after the release of the first season of Stranger Things, which, stop me if you've heard this one, features experimentation on children by a mysterious organization trying to trigger the development of unusual abilities through the application of psychoactive agents, including LSD and mental training. The relevance of the Gatewick Institute to the protagonist of the first season of the Rabbits podcast takes a long time to explore but this book has an unusual challenge. It has to include Gatewick because of its prominence in Rabbit's lore, but a good number of readers will have already listened to the podcast and will already know what to expect, so we can't treat it like a mystery, but you also can't ignore it. And you can't expand it because the incredibly successful Stranger Things has come to largely own this already established, already kind of cliched idea in the public consciousness. It is a tricky dilemma, and Miles opts for an interesting, almost surgical solution. Rip off that band-aid. Don't even finish the scene. Get interrupted by something else and pull the reader's attention away so that the significance of Gatewick can be sidetracked until we are ready to deal with it. And when we are ready to deal with it, we will deal with it immediately. We will not spend any time wandering in, in the gardens of mystery here. We will just get to the point and we'll do it in the very near future. Both of these storylines, all all three of these storylines, I guess, including Stranger Things, deliberately and explicitly tie back to the very real psychological torture, brainwashing, and mind control program run by the CIA from the early 1950s to the early 1970s, known as MKUltra, combined with a kind of Timothy Leary-style New Age, psychonautic adventure of the 1960s and 70s. We'll note again here, too, that K constantly lies to Chloe about almost every element of what is happening here, recognizing the building, recognizing the symbol, about Emily Connors. Then we transition out to the phone call with Chloe's cousin, which interrupts our study of the Gateway Institute, and then we move on to Carlotta Blake, who tells our heroes about the cult of the Grey God, their sacred path, their search in London for a street that doesn't exist, a search which ends in the disappearance of two young women. We hard cut back to the next chapter and to drama, to Kay going to the Pike Place Market only to be charged by a black sports car, Swan and the Matrix twins, two more cars, and then a van bearing the sign for Golden Seal Carpet Cleaning, the business that Kay was investigating as a connection to the mysterious Hazel. Kay is dropped off in the Fremont district of Seattle right into a classic chain of rabbit's connections. The Rocket, which is a real salvaged object sculpture, a VW Bug playing the Def Leppard song, a couple wearing different rocket-related shirts, all the way to the Fremont Troll, which is, of course, also a real piece of public art in the city. Clues point K to the Yakina Head lighthouse in Oregon, a Google map search yields an instruction to take the monorail, and honestly, it has been so long in this book since we have had one of these point-to-point, clue-to-clue adventures that it feels thrilling. I think probably that this is the best piece of mystery puzzle architecture that we get in the book. The turn to the lighthouse, I think, is particularly strong and, and surprising. All of this, though, exists to get us to Emily Connors, and to the second of the giant exposition scenes in this week's reading. Emily takes Kay to the house of a friend. Emily confirms that the scene with Crow was real, that she really was there too, that the change in reality was somehow orchestrated by Crow himself. Doubling back on that idea that, that the book is happy for Kay to be uncertain, whether these things are real, whether these things are really happening, but does not at any point want us to be uncertain as to Kay's mental health. We learn all about Kellen Meacham and the early experiments with manipulating the lines of force called radiance through a process which sounds a lot like rabbits. And then Emily gets direct, quote, what I'm talking about is feeling like the world around you is slowly forgetting the world you know, one tiny piece at a time. I felt all of those things, I admitted, end quote. And this is the perfect opportunity to introduce a concept that we're going to definitely circle back around to at the end of the book. I mentioned last week when we were discussing the timeline that I was a little surprised by Kay's age, that Kay being in their mid to late 30s doesn't feel completely intuitive to me. And one of the reasons that it doesn't feel intuitive to me is simply that the hallmarks of the story are the hallmarks of a coming of age tale. Part of what Emily is talking about here and and part of what is really going on through the process of this book, part of what we might argue connects us back to the idea that Kay is now, at least, of the opinion that they are using the game to, to move through the death of their parents. This is all growing up. And what could be if these characters were a decade younger, if these characters were two decades younger even, a charming and fairly conventional story of of emerging from the bubble of their childhood into the wider world. I think there's a lot that is happening in this story that is reflective of those themes and those, those kind of narrative structures. But the story doesn't seem to be about that, because Kay is not in that kind of story. Kay is not, meaningfully at this point, growing up. As I say, we'll come back to that question. We'll come back to what Kay's narrative and emotional arc is, if indeed there is one, and what Rabbits is really about a little in next week's reading and then ultimately, of course, in our final reading the following week. Emily tells Kay about the multiverse, the alternative hypothesis to the implied simulation theory that we discussed back at the beginning of today's episode. But rather than an infinite number of worlds, there are a finite number because it takes something major to create an inflection point and spawn a new universe. Emily fudges some metaphysics about a person's soul and what happens when you switch from one dimensional stream to another, which might make us think of all of K's missing time after their dimensional slips. Maybe this is part of an integration with the version of K in the new universe. And we also address the idea that the new universe erodes eventually the memories of the old. Anyway, Hawk Warwicker, it turns out, is good. Gatewick, it turns out, is good. The Radiance, it turns out, are good. And Edward Crawford, called Crow, is bad news. His manipulation of the Radiance caused his daughter to disappear, and according to Emily at least, this was his supervillain origin story. It's a lot of dialogue, and it's an effective reframing of the conflict, a decent enough structural transition into the third act, or at least it would be an effective transition into the third act when we cap it with chapter 29, a short little epilogue to this adventure. And that, I think, is the problem with this week's reading. I've been perhaps a little more negative on the book this week than I intended to be. And it's because, in part, second acts are difficult. Second acts are in, in much the same way as the magician defines rabbits as being everything that is not everything that is not rabbits, right? The second act is everything which is not the first act and everything that is not the last act. It is everything that is the middle of the story and progressing with purpose through your second act is the greatest challenge to any writer. I think you can separate out the really great writers from you know, capable and middling writers. Anyone can write a strong beginning. J.J. Abrams can write a strong beginning, and anyone can write a strong, emotionally rewarding climax, if not an entirely emotionally or intellectually satisfying one. You can at least have a fistfight and set off fireworks, right? You can always have something at the end of the story that feels like terminal punctuation. That is relatively easy. But sustaining the plot between those two pillars, that is much more complicated. And what we see here is Terry Miles, to some extent, trying to re-engineer the book on the fly, trying to reshape it as we go, trying to take all of that momentum out of the first act and turn it to slightly newer purpose, to refine and clarify these ideas as we move forward with a fairly rhythmic, fairly episodic and therefore fairly repetitious sequence of events. It's not entirely successful. It's certainly not entirely unsuccessful either. And it is the kind of thing that we can only really see clearly when we have moved past it. It is the kind of thing we can only see the second act when we are deep in the third or when the story is already over. We'll talk a little more about that next week. As we move into the third act of rabbits if you enjoy stars and swords if you've made it to the end of this podcast then i would like to ask you a huge favor i would like to ask you to take just a minute right now and thumbs up or rate or review this podcast on whatever platform or device you are using to listen to it i don't pay for advertising i won't take money from other people for advertising either so organic growth through recommendation is the only way we have of building this community, of finding more people who want to hang out and talk about books the way that we talk about books. And every person who listens makes it easier for me to create more podcasts. So please, even if you've never done it before, especially if you've never done it before, drop a thumbs up or a comment or a rating or a review. And if you need inspiration, if there happens to be a text box there and you want to type something into it, Richard Linklater, as we know, made three films, in our dimension at least, about Celine and Jesse: before sunrise, before sunset, and before midnight. If they make that rumored fourth film, what should it be called? Let me know in the comments or in an iTunes review, and I'll read some of my favorites in the next bonus episode. So that's going to do it for us. Next week, we knock out the majority of the rest of the book with a much shorter reading, I have to say. Chapters 30 to 41. The following week, we'll only have four chapters to cover, really just the climax. And therefore, we will have time for some Q&A. So if you already have questions, theories, recommendations of similar work, then get in touch. Stars and Swords pod at gmail.com, or stop by the Discord via the Patreon page at patreon.com slash next word. One last thing before we go, just to give you advance warning of our next series. The Patreon patrons have cast their votes, and in a last-minute squeaker of a victory, the winner is V.E. Schwab's The Invisible Life of Addie LaRue. Congratulations. I cannot wait to look at that book. I cannot wait to break it down and start working on a schedule for it. It is very likely, considering our progress with Rabbits, that that series will indeed begin on February the 11th. So go pick up your copy today. You can start reading ahead if you like. Stay tuned for the reading schedule. And absolutely stay tuned for the next Patreon poll, which will be going up around the same time, somewhere around February 11th, so that you guys can choose the fourth book that we will cover here on Star stars and swords, footnoting, genre fiction. That is going to do it for this week. If you like this show and would like me to make more, head on over to offer your support at patreon.com slash next word. And as I say every week here at the end of the show, win the game, save the world. Thanks for listening.